I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. And that is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. Today, for our very first episode, we talked to Andy Kim, who recently announced that he's exploring a run in New Jersey's 3rd Congressional District. Now, this is the district that's currently held by GOP Representative Tom MacArthur, who is a lead author of Trump Care and who is integral to the successful passage of that legislation in the House last week. Now, Andy grew up in South Jersey in the district and went on to represent New Jersey as a Rhodes Scholar and a Truman Scholar. He also advised President Obama on ISIS at the National Security Council and was a strategic advisor to General Petraeus in Afghanistan. Uh, throughout this interview, we touch on Andy's career and also talk about growing up in the district in South Jersey. So let's jump in. All right, Andy, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. In this podcast, we're going to be spotlighting up-and-coming promising leaders uh, with a special focus on the 2018 election. And it's a particular pleasure to welcome you here, Andy, for our first podcast because we've known each other for years. Andy, we've known each other since what, 2005? Yeah, that's right, Ravi. Um, you know, we've known each other since 2005. We were a part of that great Truman Scholarship community that's created a lot of uh, leaders in public service. So I'm glad to be a part of that community and to be a friend of yours. Awesome. Well, thanks for continuing on the tradition. And, you know, the big news here, Andy, is fresh off the presses is that you've recently announced that you're seriously considering a run for Congress in New Jersey's third congressional district. Uh, We're going to get into that race in a bit, but tell us a little bit about that district. What is it like growing up in South Jersey? Yeah. uh, So I grew up in South Jersey ever since I was in kindergarten. And, uh, you know, I've called it home. The the Jersey third was uh, the only district that I've known. And, you know, I grew up in the the South Jersey public school system. Uh, You know, it's where I uh, hit my first home run. It's where I learned to play sports. Uh, It's where I got my first job at the uh, local Barnes and Nobles and uh, spent a lot of my time hanging out with my friends at local diners. Um, And these are friends of mine who I grew up with and who stood by my side on my wedding day. I I love South Jersey. It's, uh, you know, a place where I really grew a sense of possibility and opportunity. It's a place where I came to understand that I could accomplish anything. Um, No one ever told me to limit my dreams, but they also taught me that I have to work hard and fight hard for what I want. Um, So in that way, it's a place that was uh, incredibly inspiring. It's a place that was grounded in reality. Um, It's a community that was extremely diverse. Um, And those are all of the things and elements that set me up for who I am today. And so you just mentioned that you attended public school and, you know, for our listeners, you know, Andy eventually went on to become a Truman Scholar and a Rhodes Scholar representing New Jersey Proud, uh, graduate of Deep Springs College and the University of Chicago. Uh, Something must have gone right for you in that public school system. Tell us about your experience going through the system and, um, and why you had such a successful experience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it was nothing is for granted. You know, everyone's experience, um, you know, needs to be taken into consideration individually. You know, for me, um, you know, I grew up in the Jersey Third, and you know, went everything from learning my multiplication tables all the way to studying for my SATs. And for me, it was about the incredible teachers that we had uh, that really inspired me and dared me to be creative and to ask questions and not assume anything. And, uh, you know, I think about my proudest moments from everything from uh, nerdy geography bees to uh, some of the, the you know, times where I, I <laughs> scored well on tests or had really great projects, uh, but also times where I could have done better and could have pushed myself um, to improve. You know, the important thing is that I was surrounded by really incredible uh, classmates um, that <clears throat> really pushed me as well and, and created a community in which we can grow together, um, had an incredibly supportive community of people that allowed us to have a safe place in which we can pursue our uh, opportunities. 
And you know, now I'm a father. I have a baby boy, 20 months old, and I have another on the way. And I see education not just in the rearview mirror. It's something that drives me uh, to push forward into the future. And I want to make sure that every opportunity that I had uh, is something that is afforded to my kids as well. And as I said, there's nothing for granted you can take for granted. A good school system doesn't necessarily guarantee uh, success. But what I can to say is that it gives you every opportunity you can to try to find those moments to seize um, and find the ways in which you can improve yourself going forward and, and your life going forward as well. Yeah, so Andy, make it real for us. Are there any particular teachers you want to shout out uh, from South Jersey? Yeah, well, you know, the, the one teacher uh, that I always think about is Mr. Carr. Uh, he was, uh, you know, a, a teacher that uh, taught me the love of great books um, to think about uh, literature and, and, and <clears throat> novels and books as ways to enrich myself. But he's also someone that was the, the head of the, you know, the yearbook office, uh, which I was uh, an editor and eventually editor-in-chief. And that was really my first experiences in management. <laughs> you know, my first experiences learn how to work as a team and put something together in a, in a final product. And he was always such an incredible guide. He was always someone who uh, gave himself fully to uh, the students uh, that were there and always so patient with uh, all of us. So, you know, I, I do want to give a particular shout out to him because uh, he did change my life and did, uh, you know, put me on a path in which I could become the person that I am today. So tell us a little bit about Andy Kim, the high schooler. So, you know, I know you now um, as the adult that you are, and you're kind of a renaissance man. You know, you're a musician, you're a national security expert, um, and now you're a father. Uh, were you, what, what was your sort of click in high school? Uh, and wh were, you, were you into music back then too? Yeah, I was. Um, so, you know, growing up, I was a, a classical cellist, um, but also, also uh, someone who, who uh, played uh, rock guitar. And, uh, you know, I kind of balanced that, uh, that sort of element in high school. I mean, I was someone who uh, certainly wanted to push myself to uh, be as strong of a student as I could. And then, uh, you know, some ways I succeeded, in some ways I struggled. I'm horrible at chemistry. <laughs> I don't know why. It just doesn't quite click with who I am, I guess. And, uh, uh, but I found other subjects in which I, I really uh, thrived. And I found really great friends. Uh, as I said, friends that I've uh, continued to uh, be sort of the core uh, people in my life. And, uh, you know, we, we, really had, it came from diverse backgrounds. And well, we loved music. We would go see shows as often as we could. Um, you know, we would really enjoy just uh, singing, sitting at the diner for hours and hours, um, just talking and just riffing. And it was uh, really an incredible community um, to help get through. I mean, you know, high school is high school. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a tough place. And uh, it's not a place that you as a student want to go show up every day, you'd rather be having fun somewhere else. So having those friends, having that community is, uh, you know, what kept me going. Now, Andy, you had an unconventional college experience. You went to a little known college for your first two years called Deep Springs. Uh, this, this is a national treasure that I think most people are not aware of. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to go to Deep Springs College um, and how that set you up eventually uh, for some later success? Yeah, Deep Springs. I mean, I always love talking about Deep Springs College. It's uh, it's the world's smallest school. They accept only 13 students a year uh, for two years. So that's 26 students total. Um, and they're drawing from top students all over the country. But what they do is they take us and they uh, drop us on uh, in a cattle ranch in the middle of the California Nevada desert. And the idea is that uh, we study the great books. We have that experience that, uh, you know, that education that um, is world-class, but we also do seven to eight hours of manual labor a day. We grow our own food. We ride horses. We do cattle drives with the Sierra Nevada mountain range in the background. We learn how to fix cars, milk cows. Um, we learn how to butcher and slaughter our own uh, meat and learn all the things that make a small ranch and farm run, you know, in this modern age. It's a place um, of just extraordinary depth where it's about 
uh, not how much you know, but how how deeply you know it. That life and education is not just about the classroom. That is not just about books, but it's about your hands. It's about working with other people in your community. And for me, the top lesson that I got from that school was that it was a school focused on the mission of training people for service to humanity. Uh, that's the phrase that everybody, all the students there take extremely seriously. And it's that concept of service that really became part of me. It was the first time that I started to grapple with it in a tangible way, where service wasn't just a job, it was a way of life. It was a recognition of the community in which you live and your responsibility to others in that community. So, you know, it, it was an experience where I came out of that and immediately would try to see community around me no matter where I lived, whether that was the University of Chicago, whether that was in, in Jersey or DC or England or Afghanistan, Iraq, all, every place I live, I try to recognize that community. And that all stems from Deep Springs and, and that uh, concept that I'm so grateful and thankful that it instilled in me when I was younger. So walk us through a day, day in the life of a Deep Springs college student. Sure. So, uh, you know, my favorite job while I was there was as the dairyman. Um, it was a job where I would have to wake up uh, before anybody else and uh, have to, to walk down to the dairy farm. We had two uh, dairy cows that we would have to uh, hand milk. And, uh, you know, it's an experience where like you see uh, exactly what the community needs. You see your role in the community so clearly. So, uh, you know, uh, learning how to run a small uh, dairy in the state of California, learning all the ins and outs of, of, of being a farmer in that way, uh, but also making sure you see that, you know, the, the milk gets on the table for your community, that, that the cheeses, that uh, buttermilk and yogurt, uh, I all had to learn that to make from scratch. Um, I had to figure it all out. Um, that was uh, an incredibly, um, you know, amazing experience to go through that. So I would start with that in the morning and go off to classes uh, later that uh, morning and then in the afternoon go back out into the field. So uh, go back out and, uh, and, and work in the alfalfa fields. Uh, sometimes we would do cattle drives in the afternoon. Um, sometimes the labor was not as exciting and, and, and full of glory. Sometimes it was just uh, having to build a fence or having to fix a car. Um, and we would do that uh, you know, in the afternoons and then gather together as a community for dinner. Um, and then uh, we would have uh, all sorts of meetings in the afternoon, uh, oh, sorry, in the evening, where we would uh, do self-governance and other things that were uh, helping the community come together. But it was a, a nonstop experience. I was there for two years, uh, you know, isolated in the desert, really uh, learning to work with my hands and, and push myself in ways that I never had before. Well, let's shift gears. Uh, you are potentially running against Representative Tom MacArthur, who uh, played an integral role in the recent healthcare repeal bill that went through the House. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your potential opponent's role in that legislation? Yeah, I so I'm considering a run against Tom MacArthur. He's someone who has become Trump's strongest supporter in New Jersey. Uh, he single-handedly revived Trump care by creating the MacArthur Amendment named after him. That was uh, the reason that the protection for people who have pre-existing conditions got gutted. You know, this is uh, all of this national uh, fervor right now over the removal of these uh, protections on pre-existing conditions. That all stems from MacArthur. And I want the entire nation to know who he is and what he did because he needs to be held accountable for this. This is someone who sees uh, this uh, opportunity for him in a very personal way. I believe he was driven by his personal ambitions rather than what's uh, good for the nation and what's good for his district. You know, it's something that universally was panned by experts across the board uh, as something that was going to uh, make millions of people uh, suffer and, and lose their health insurance. So, you know, for MacArthur, not only to be someone who voted yes, but to actually be the person, to be the person who authored this and to stand by it in the way that he has, uh, very much out of touch with the district. And that's very that, that's the reason why I'm considering running against him is because I can't believe that 
the author of that uh, legislation, the author of that amendment, um, is is the representative from my home district, and I believe he needs to be held to account for that. And Andy, so much of the attention around that bill has been focused on pre-existing conditions, um, and rightly so. Uh, what other concerns do you have around the bill? Well, as a whole, the bill takes hundreds of uh, billions of dollars away from low-income people and the people that are most vulnerable. And it gives that money as a tax cut to some of the wealthiest Americans. So it's really, you know, when you take a step back, it's really about uh, you know, cutting taxes of the wealthy Americans. That's what was you know, really the intended purpose from this Republican uh, bill. And I think that that is extremely out of touch with where we are now. We have spiraling inequality. It's critical for us to look out for those who are most vulnerable and to make sure that we understand sort of what we as a society believe we need to have as uh, basic human dignity that in terms of you know essential health benefits it's about you know the the care that uh, my wife gets when we had our first kid and that she will have when we have our second child that is essential health benefit and that is not something that we should penalize people for that's not something where we say oh well you can only do this if you have uh, enough money. You know, we have a vested interest in having a healthy country, and we want to make sure that everyone has the opportunities to succeed. Exactly what I was saying about, you know, my time growing up in education. It's about the government's role is about making sure that we as people are secure and that we have opportunities to succeed. It doesn't guarantee anything, but it gives us those opportunities. And you don't have those opportunities if you're sick and if you are trying to put you know, all of your money is going towards healthcare. Um, you know, that is not the type of country um, that we uh, started with. That is not the type of country that is uh, going to succeed going forward. And so, Andy, make it real for us. Tell us about how this is going to impact your district. Well, in the district, I mean, it's uh, the, the numbers are astronomical. We're talking about over 33,000 people in the Jersey Third that could lose their insurance, uh, you know, if this bill uh, passes in its current form. You know, thousands more could be affected, uh, you know, with regards to pre-existing conditions or uh, other health, uh, essential health benefits. Those who have low income will, could, could see their health care premiums skyrocket. So, you know, this is something that uh, is extremely real. It's, it's something that's going to affect a tremendous number of people in the Jersey Third as well as across the country. And from our standpoint... I mean, we didn't even have the latest score from the Congressional Budget Office for this bill that passed last week. Uh, there was no public hearings, uh, no testimony from experts. Uh, it was the most consequential piece of legislation in years, and the language wasn't even made public for, uh, you know, for 24 hours before the vote. Uh, many of the members themselves didn't even have time to read it, and I believe that that process, that rushed process, was reckless and irresponsible, uh, something that makes me believe that uh, they knew uh, what would happen if, if people really had the time to, to think through this and spend time uh, looking at it based on facts and based on its merits. And the American people deserve better. The American people deserve to have the information presented to them. Uh, they deserve to be able to uh, engage with their members, uh, uh, to be able to discuss this before any vote. And that process just did not happen. So that's healthcare, right? That's one one issue where you depart from your potential opponent. Uh, where else has Representative MacArthur uh, fallen short as a representative of the district, and what would you do differently? Sure, uh, I'll I'll just take a couple examples from the last few months. So he was a strong supporter of the Muslim ban, uh, which I believe uh, was. Uh, a, a grave violation on a lot of the values that we have um, as a nation, as a, a patriotic nation that has been uh, one that has uh, been built by uh, immigrants, that has given safe haven to refugees for hundreds of years. Uh, he is someone that voted to reduce our internet privacy, someone who uh, has uh, decided to give corporations uh, ability to use our private uh, information and our data to, to sell for their own purposes. And, uh, you know, in the Jersey Third, we have a major military base there that contributes thousands upon thousands of jobs and supports so many of the communities that I grew up around as I grew up uh, near this base. And, you know, he gave up his seat on the Armed Services Committee 
Um, and I think that that's something that, uh, you know, the people of the Jersey third are going to look at and say, what is he trying to do? You know, what, these are the priorities of our district. Uh, we ha and this, then this base has been, uh, you know, an anchor and a pillar of, uh, our community. Um, we need someone to look out for us. We need someone to uh, make sure that they are following through on that. And as someone from my, you know, myself coming from a national security background and having, uh, you know, served in war zones before alongside our brave servicemen and women, uh, I absolutely want to make sure that they have uh, everything that they need uh, to be able to succeed, that these communities that are supporting them and our veterans, that they have everything uh, that it can, we can provide to them to, to thank them for their service and to make sure that, uh, that their service is something that uh, benefits all of us and that is uh, something that uh, they receive the respect uh, from all of us um, in return for their incredible work and sacrifice. So those are some of the things that, that come to mind that I feel like demonstrate that uh, Tom MacArthur is someone who sees the Jersey Third as a line item in his resume, that sees this as a stepping stone to higher office. He's not from the, the Jersey Third. He moved down from North Jersey uh, when he th saw an opportunity to pick up a, a political seat. So I really want... Uh, the people of the Jersey Third to think and look at him, is this the kind of person that they think is looking out for them? It, 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 does he have their best interests um, in mind? And I think the answer will be no. And so why why did he step down from the Armed Services Committee? We'll have to ask him. You know, we'll have to, and, and I know that the, the people of the Jersey Third were continuing to ask him and uh, demand to know. I mean, I think that he saw an opportunity to uh, move on to uh, the finance committee. Um, you know, I, I think it's an opportunity that he thought might be uh, better for him personally in terms of his personal ambitions and, and making the connections for, again, uh, whatever it is that he thinks he's going to do next. Uh, again, I think he sees this as a stepping stone um, that he's trying to put together uh, you know, some type of campaign for higher office. I don't know. But whatever it is, I don't think it's in line with uh, the Jersey Third. Yeah, I mean, you can't say this, but sometimes finance committee is, is a good uh, way station before people become high-priced lobbyists. Uh, and so hopefully you can help accelerate that career change <laughs> for them in this next election. So let's move on to foreign policy, Andy. Uh, you opposed, uh, as I did, the Iraq War, I believe, but you wound up eventually serving under Petraeus and then in the Obama White House doing Iraq policy. And, you know, I had a similar experience and I was working, I, I you know, the, the only, pro, the first protest experience in my life was protesting outside of the UN uh, during Colin Powell's presentation in 2003. And then I wound up working for Susan Rice and showing up to the UN every day for work in the Security Council uh, and sometimes working on Iraq policy as well. How did you wind up going from somebody who opposed the war, and that was like a seminal experience for you coming of age, to then uh, working on policy uh, on the war itself? I started my, my first job while I was in college at the University of Chicago was as a uh, you know, community organizer at the Chicago Coalition of the Homeless. So I was someone who was very much grounded in uh, state and local politics, working for you know people and trying to support the communities around me. Then the Iraq War churned up, and it was the first time that I started getting involved in foreign policy issues. I just could not believe that uh, that the Bush administration was leading our country towards war when uh, when you know pretty much uh, every other major ally of ours in the world was telling us uh, no when uh, a lot of our experts were saying that the information was faulty. And uh, I, those were my first experiences protesting. You know, those were my first experiences uh, encountering a government that was not listening to, um, to me and not listening to uh, the, the people around me and the people that were demanding to have their voices heard. When the war happened, it was devastating. When it started, it crushed me. And I still remember standing on uh, the side of the street um, in, in Boston when I was visiting a friend and seeing uh, shock and awe start. And it was on the TVs in this uh, electronics store. And I remember my heart sinking because I was experiencing a government that seemed so out of touch with me. And at that point, 
I immediately transitioned into a period of trying to understand that our actions have responsibilities, especially when our servicemen and women are in harm's way. And when that happened in Iraq, I immediately tried to devote my life to learning as much as I could about war, as much as I could about Iraq and the Middle East, hoping that I could play a role in, in shaping this uh, mess into something that was uh, the, the, the best we could do, the most responsible way to, uh, to move forward, given that 4,400 Americans would come to lose their life in that war. So you know, I was lucky enough to get the Rhodes Scholarship. I went off to Oxford and I wrote my PhD on, uh, on Iraq, on understanding how the United States policy on Iraq has shifted over time. Mm -hmm. And I jumped in to the State Department as a diplomat uh, at the Pentagon, um, at the White House, working on Iraq policy and, and trying to be that champion from the inside. I, I very much believe that we need to see the change that can occur with our government, not just from the outside and people pushing and pressuring our members of Congress and pressuring uh, our government to do something, but we need that change and those champions on the inside as well. And that's what makes for effective change and, and a movement. That's what pushes our government forward uh, with the amount of progress that I hope to see over the coming years. And that's very much the approach and reason that I'm considering running for Congress as well, is to make sure that I can take this energy that I see around the country and be able to push it and help work with them uh, from all, both inside and outside, uh, for the betterment of our country. And so we've now been at war in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, since both of us were in college uh, over a decade now. And I like to think of it, you know, I was an educator before and the original students I started serving are now in high school and we've been at war their, their entire lives. Do you think there's an end in sight to either or both of those wars? Nothing's guaranteed and, and we can't take anything for granted. I mean, what we need to do is focus on building an enduring security and that needs to be our top priority. And our nation has gone to war in Iraq every 12 years of my life, once when I was eight, again when I was 20, and again when I was 32. And I've traveled around both Iraq and Afghanistan. I met the brave men and women that have been serving our country. And honestly, I pray that we don't have to fight future wars in those countries. You know, I'm going to judge the success of this current war on ISIS, this current war in Iraq, um, not just only in terms of whether or not we can stop those murders, but I'll judge it whether or not it's our last war in Iraq. And anything short of that is going to be a failure. Anything short of stopping it at this point and finding that enduring security that will prevent my son's generation from having to fight that fight, um, that is the only way in which I think we'll come out of this um, you know, and, and say that this was a success. And uh, you know, I, I deeply think through you know, all the lives that have been lost. A lot of people our age, people that, uh, you know, while I was uh, in graduate school, we, you know, people my age were, were fighting the fight, and that is never lost on me, um, just the sacrifices that um, brave people of our generation put into this. So, um, you know, moving forward, I really do pray that we'll see an end to these wars, um, and I hope that the end comes uh, in a way that's responsible and focused on an enduring security that we can uh, build upon and, and make sure that uh, that drives uh, our policies in the Middle East and other uh, battle zones around the world. So, Andy, you worked under David Petraeus, uh, General Petraeus, who's, you know, despite, um, you know, the way that he uh, eventually had to resign his position uh, and, and some of the, the struggles that he's gone through over the past few years, he's a, a legend of counterinsurgency and, um, you know, during his best moments uh, was quite a legendary leader. What did you learn uh, from working up close as an advisor to him in Afghanistan? Absolutely. I mean, I had a, it was a great honor being able to serve under General Petraeus and under General Allen, his successor. And, uh, you know, in the time that I was there, I learned a tremendous amount. And being able to see the war up front, really being able to see the dangers that our service men and women put themselves uh, in for our nation, it becomes real. And the one thing that General Petraeus, as well as General Allen, uh, really insisted upon 
was going on battlefield circulations, going out to the different outposts around Afghanistan multiple times a week, making sure that they're meeting with soldiers, not just the generals out in these different areas, but meeting with uh, soldiers of every rank, uh, meeting with local Afghan leaders, as well as uh, members of the community. And watching that, you know, being able to see uh, the, you know, the strategic commander of the largest war in the world going out and, and really trying to have those human interactions, uh, that left a big impact on me. And it's something like when I went out and traveled to Kandahar, uh, really getting a chance to, to meet and talk with uh, soldiers myself and, and Afghans as well, um, you, know, you really focus on the fact that it's about the people and you need to hear what's getting across to them from your messaging. You need to hear what their priorities are and, and internalize that and think that through in terms of your own strategy. And I carry that with me when I went to the White House and I would sit in the situation room with the president and his cabinet and think through uh, the fact that we are thousands of miles from the battlefield. How is it that we're able to understand what are the needs on the ground. And that's when it comes back again to the people and making sure that I was able to connect with people on the ground, get that information and, and really make sure that they understand as well communications from the White House, communication from the president on what the strategy is and what we can do better to communicate and coordinate going forward. You know, the better we can do that, the better we can fight and the better chance we have of winning. And so I'm gonna ask you a few questions uh, as we close. Uh, that uh, you're going to now establish tradition. We're going to ask this of the thousands and thousands of, uh, of guests that we're going to have in the future. And so you get to establish it. And so try to give as quick an answer as you possibly can, knowing that some of these are complicated questions. Uh, first question is, what's one view that you hold that isn't widely popular within your district and that you think may cost you some votes, but that you're going to stick to out of principle? The, uh, you know, the quick response to that is that, uh, you know, I believe that uh, the United States uh, has a important role to play uh, militarily in terms of, of uh, you know, helping those who are vulnerable and suffering around the world. When we had the chance to, to save the Yazidis from imminent genocide on top of Mount Sinjar back in August 2014, I did believe that that was a role that the United States was uniquely positioned to do. And if we didn't do it, a lot of people would die. Um, but I know that there was a very controversial decision and one that people uh, disagreed with in terms of the role that the United States needs to play um, and the role that our military needs to play. But um, that is something that, uh, you know, I do believe uh, we can be a force for good in this country uh, and a force for good in this world about that. And so paint the picture for us, because, you know, some folks might not have been following that clearly, but it's almost cinematic uh, what uh, went down. And uh, paint the picture of this standoff, uh, what the U.S. decision point was, uh, what the result was, and also like where you were and what role you played in that decision. Uh, happy to. I mean, this was, in my opinion, uh, the finest moment of government I ever witnessed. Um, but again, as I said, uh, certainly one that, uh, you know, was controversial as well. Um, so, you know, in August 2014, I was the Iraq director at the National Security Council. I was running point on a lot of the coordination at the beginning of the war against ISIS. And I started to get, uh, started to get word on around, you know, August uh, 4th and 5th that uh, Yazidis were, uh, by the tens of thousands, fleeing uh, into the mountains, into Mount Sinjar, because ISIS was pursuing them. And that tens of thousands of Yazidi men, women, children were stuck at top uh, the mountain, um, you know, in biblical proportions, just this exodus uh, that has been flowing out, um, that they were trapped up there without adequate food and water and that ISIS was in hot pursuit. Um, this was a situation in which, uh, you know, we were trying to desperately get as much information as possible, but there are limitations, just the fact that it's on the other side of the world and in a very remote location. So, you know, we were doing everything we can to try to figure this out, uh, try to uh, understand, but it was a very chaotic time. Um, you know, what became clear was that uh, if if we didn't move forward, um, and the Iraqis were certainly in no position to be able to help save uh, these tens of thousands of people, and they were asking for our help, 
and the entire world was calling us and trying to get a sense of what we were trying to do. We really did feel like we had only a matter of hours uh, before we were able to uh, meaningfully stop what we thought was an imminent genocide, that we would potentially see the massacre of tens of thousands of people if we were not to act quickly. Uh, so I uh, convened uh, the uh, different government agencies for a meeting, um, really tried to push for consensus on what we should do. But as I said, it's a controversial issue about what role the United States should be playing. So, we, you know, we really kept pushing at this and tried to put together, put together a plan on uh, how we were going to save uh, and move forward and try to help these people as much as possible. Um, we came up with a plan that was both in terms of dropping humanitarian assistance uh, in the airdrops uh, at the top of this mountain in enemy territory. It was extremely risky. Um, as well as doing airstrikes against ISIS, which would be our very first time that we would confront ISIS in uh, in this new war. Um, so it was a lot on the table. And I remember uh, the evening of August 6, uh, walking into the Oval Office with uh, you know the president's top advisors um, and talking this through and talking to the president about you know whether or not we were going to take this first strike against ISIS if we were going to move forward. Um, so it was an incredibly uh, dynamic, incredibly stressful period, but I was impressed with uh, just how quickly the entire government came together in this crisis situation. And I'm really proud of the thousands of people uh, that were involved from uh, the people who did the airdrop and, and the incredible pilots that put themselves at risk to uh, people back in D.C. who helped put this uh, plan together in just a matter of 72 hours. I believe it is the fastest response to genocide that our country or any country has ever done uh, to stop an imminent genocide. Um, and I, as I said, I believe that uh, that was the finest uh, experience and moment um, I've ever seen in terms of uh, our country jumping up to help people on the other side of the world. Have you ever gotten a chance to meet uh, somebody, uh, a Yazidi? Yes, absolutely. I, I did. Um, you know, it was incredible um, getting to meet with um, you know that population and that community, there are a significant number of Yazidis uh, in the U.S. that were very active around that time in terms of highlighting and uh, underscoring the challenges and the dangers that that their their brethren are, were under. Um, a lot of Yazidis were very helpful uh, to uh, the American military force during the previous Iraq War. Um, so a lot of them had worked as translators, interpreters, etc. Um, so I was in daily communication with uh, different uh, Yazidi leaders, and I've met with many of them when they would come on over uh, to the United States. And I've met with um, you know uh, brave uh, girls and, and and young women who were kidnapped um, and abused by ISIS, and uh, you know just suffered unbelievable horrors at the hands of these murders, and uh, was extremely moved. I mean, there were. Uh, real emotions at stake, and, and you can really get a sense of just how real um, it was. It wasn't just uh, some policy on paper. This was, you know, real lives at risk, um, and, and a, a lot of people that obviously um, we are not able to save, and, and, and those are always going to be the ones that hunt us, um, but we do the best we can working with all our partners um, to make the biggest impact we can, and I, I do believe we did uh, a lot of good um, and and helped uh, a lot of people move forward and, and uh, uh, avoid, um, you know, death at the hands of ISIS. And so uh, second question here is, you know, you, uh, you are pretty knowledgeable across the spectrum on different policy areas. And what is, you know, one issue that you're obsessed with that you don't think gets enough attention in Washington, including uh, within the Democratic Party? Yeah, uh, I would say that the the issue that I'm most obsessed with, and I'm starting, to, I'm happy that it's starting to get more attention. But that's gerrymandering. You know, I mean, th I think this is an issue that doesn't get enough attention given uh, its significance and uh, you know the the unbelievable impact that it has on our democracy. I mean, this to me is a very clear cut issue. It should be nonpartisan. It's all about the people. It's about making sure that voters are the ones that can choose their politicians, not politicians choosing their voters. And that's a very simple concept for, for me to understand that uh, those who are putting together these districts uh, should not be uh, elected officials, that they should not be people who are looking to pursue, pursue um, you know, elected office in that way. That's 
how we protect the, the role and the power of the citizens. And uh, that to me is a just a core issue. Um, it's something that is very damaging to our democracy and it's something that needs to be uh, fixed at an urgent level nationwide because any type of gerrymandering anywhere is a threat uh, to our democracy all across this country. Um, so it doesn't matter what state it's in, it's affecting all of us. And that's something that we all need to work together uh, as citizens, as people to address. So uh, third question here, and, and I expect a, a stellar answer from you because you're a Rhodes Scholar, a Truman Scholar, so you've, you probably know how to ace an interview where you get questions like this. But uh, who's a leader, you know, somebody living or dead, who you emulate uh, and you think about um, as you attempt to be the best possible leader you could be? The person who comes to mind uh, first and foremost was a tremendous mentor of mine. Um, his name was uh, Ambassador Chris Stevens. He was tragically killed in Libya a few years back. And and, and Andy, let me pause for a second there. Uh, and he, just for the listeners, um, more specifically, he was he was killed where? Uh, yes, he was killed in, in Benghazi, Libya, during an attack on our consulate there. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, heartbreaking. It was all over the news. It was, I remember, um, I, I didn't get word of his death until I showed up to the State Department for work the, the next morning and, and you know, saw his face and picture on the, the you know, CNN website. And for a moment, didn't understand what was going on. And then I realized that he was there on the website for the worst possible of, of reasons, which was that he was, you know, tragically killed during that attack. And, um, you know, it was it was really devastating. And, you know, this is a person who I shared an office with when I worked at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was the very first person I met who worked from the State Department. He was a diplomat. And... He's the person that really convinced me uh, over that summer to think about pursuing a career as a public servant, as a diplomat, as a member of the State Department, um, which I never considered prior to meeting him. And, you know, what he taught me were core values of why to do that, because, you know, that was during the Bush administration. And I was, you know, certainly uh, not uh, a supporter of their foreign policy um, and, and their policies towards Iraq. And but, you know, what Chris taught me was that, you know, we need champions both inside and outside of government, that every day is a fight and that individuals still matter in, in these massive bureaucracies that have you know, hundreds of thousands of people. There's still room for individuals to change our government, to change our nation, to change our world. And Chris was the embodiment of what it means to be a public servant with unbelievable integrity and tremendous uh, passion and you know I miss him dearly I, I really do and I think about him often and I think about how he uh, changed the, the course of my life in ways that you know very few people have and I will always try to live up to his example I will um, but uh, I really do hope I can make you know him and other people proud by trying to be that type of public servant uh, with that same type of passion and integrity going forward. And so uh, last question for you, Andy. If if all goes right and um, you send uh, Representative MacArthur to uh, a, a swift entry into the private sector as a lobbyist, uh, and you're now the incumbent a few years from now running for re-election, what do you anticipate being your message in that campaign? So what are, you, what are you running on as some of the highlights of your first term in office? The way that I am approaching this, you know, if I were to, to move ahead and run and, and then have the, uh, the honor and privilege of, of winning and representing the people of the Jersey Third, it's all about putting the people first. I want to try to work government in a in a new way i want to try something different something that puts uh the responsibility to the constituents as the first and foremost uh job of the representative um, i want to promise uh the constituents that i they will have regular access to me that i will hold regular town halls that they can 
uh, expect and know that every few weeks there at, at the at the latest there will be one um, that I will be making sure that I can talk with communities all across the district. I want to have daily reports out to uh, the different uh, to the constituents and let them know what I'm doing, who I'm meeting, what are the priorities, uh, making sure that they are going to become the most informed constituency in the country, that they are going to be the best connected to their member. I want each and every one of them to understand that uh, it isn't just that they elect someone and then they hand over all of their responsibilities and authorities and only you know every election day do they have a chance to participate. Being a citizen, being a, uh, an American, uh, this is about having and being able to exercise and participate in your democracy each and every day. That there is something for all of them every single day that they can have the information that they need and that the member is the one that that's that serves them that it's about being a public servant not necessarily a leader that is off on their own and doesn't have to report back and doesn't have to consider uh, their constituents views before major pieces of legislation like the health care bill they need to be consulted uh, with the people each and every step of the way so if i do go ahead and do this and people uh, uh, see me as someone who's trying to live a different model to try to be a new type of representative, to try to create a new type of Congress that reimagines and reinvigorates what it means to be a citizen, then I will be happy because I will have uh, fulfilled what it is that I'm trying to uh, put together and, and I will live true to the energy that I'm trying to uh, bring right now as I uh, consider whether or not to try to represent um, the great people of the New Jersey Third. And so, uh, Andy, you've now put out a, a crowd pack page, and, and you've raised a decent amount of money in just a week or two. And uh, we're going to be putting up a, a special arena specific crowd pack link with this podcast on our blog. Uh, why is it important for folks to to commit right now? And what happens with those commitments? Uh, if you decide to run, uh, or if you decide not to run, this is a uh, you know the running for uh, elected office is is a very complicated and and very intimidating process. You know I think that's why a lot of uh, good people uh, get turned off by when they they understand just how complicated and and just how difficult of a process it is. Uh, a big reason why I I went this process of of reaching out to people and and wanting to uh, get a sense from them before I move anything more formal is I really do want to uh, abide by this theory of putting the people first and making sure that I have an opportunity to talk with different communities, uh, with different members across uh, the Jersey Third, but also across this country. And, you know, the CrowdPack page, people can pledge. Uh, it doesn't take any money out uh, at this point until I decide whether or not I will uh, formally get involved in the race. And, uh, you know, at that point, uh, you know, I will, I will follow up with each and every uh, person um, and thank them, of course, for their, their support, but also work with them to build a new movement here. And I think that that's really why I started in the way that I did, which is that it's about the grassroots. It's about this unbelievable groundswell of energy. Um, if anything's going to happen to... Uh, change the direction of the, of the Jersey Third. It's going to happen because of the people. It's going to be happening because of of small donations from uh, thousands and thousands of people across uh, New Jersey as well as the country. So um, I very much embrace uh, the energy that's out there, and I want to make sure that uh, I help channel that and I help uh, work with people uh, to be able to build on that and really try to change our country into a better direction. Uh, their constituents' views before major pieces of legislation like the health care bill. They need to be consulted uh, with the people each and every step of the way. So if I do go ahead and do this and people uh, uh, see me as someone who's trying to live a different model to try to be a new type of representative, to try to create a new type of Congress that reimagines and reinvigorates what it means to be a citizen, then I will be happy because I will have uh, fulfilled what it is that I'm trying to uh, put together and, and, the, and I will live true to the energy that I'm trying to uh, bring right now as I uh, consider whether or not to try to represent um, the great people of the New Jersey Third. 
And so, uh, Andy, you've now put out a, a crowd pack page and, and you've raised a decent amount of money in just a week or two. And uh, we're going to be putting up a, a special arena specific crowd pack link with this podcast on our blog. Uh, why is it important for folks to, to commit right now? And what happens with those commitments uh, if you decide to run uh, or if you decide not to run? This is, uh, you know, the running for uh, elected office is is a very complicated and, and very intimidating process. You know, I think that's why a lot of uh, good people uh, get turned off by when they, they understand just how complicated and, and just how difficult of a process it is. Uh, a big reason why I, I went this process of, of reaching out to people and, and wanting to uh, get a sense from them before I move anything more formal is I really do want to be, uh, abide by this theory of putting the people first and making sure that I have an opportunity to talk with different communities, uh, with different members across uh, the Jersey Third, but also across this country. And, you know, the CrowdPack page, people can pledge. Uh, it doesn't take any money out uh, at this point until I decide whether or not I will uh, formally get involved in the race. And, uh, you know, at that point, uh, you know, I will, I will follow up with each and every uh, person um, and thank them, of course, for their, their support, but also work with them to build a new movement here. And I think that that's really why I started in the way that I did, which is that it's about the grassroots. It's about this unbelievable groundswell of energy. Um, if anything's going to happen to uh, change the direction of the, of the Jersey Third, it's going to happen because of the people. It's going to be happening because of of small donations from uh, thousands and thousands of people across uh, New Jersey as well as the country. So um, I very much embrace uh, the energy that's out there, and I want to make sure that uh, I help channel that and I help uh, work with people uh, to be able to build on that and really try to change our country into a better direction. Well, thank you, Andy. It's a, it's a real pleasure and honor to have you as our first guest on the Arena podcast. And uh, the best of luck. And we really look forward to the decision that uh, we anticipate from you over probably the next few weeks. So thank you. Absolutely. It's been a real pleasure talking with you and uh, great to be a part of the dynamic Arena community um, that you've been building it's been a, you know, a tremendous source of uh, optimism and hope uh, going forward and really reminds us uh, that a future, a bright future is there um, if we're willing to roll up our sleeves and get in the fight. <laughs>